2: Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Here's hoping that April showers bring May flowers wherever you live. It is with great pleasure that I introduce this week's guest, Alan Prendergast. He is an award winning journalist who has written for Rolling Stone, Los Angeles Magazine, Men's Journal, and many other publications. He is especially well-known for his stories about the justice system and high-security prisons. He is a Denver native and knows a lot about Colorado history, and his latest book, called Gangbuster, One Man's Battle Against Crime, Corruption, and the Klan, takes place in a very sordid era of Denver history. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Oh, my pleasure,
2: Eric. So, before we get to the meat and potatoes of your book, you wrote an account of a very notorious event in 1914 called the Ludlow Massacre, and you won a really prestigious journalism award for that story. We've never covered this on the podcast before. Would you mind explaining what the Ludlow Massacre was and its importance to the history of Colorado.
1: Well, yeah, it is very important in Colorado, although a lot of people haven't heard of it. And actually, I think it's important in the labor movement uh, nationwide. It was one of the most violent labor conflicts in the history of this country. Um, this was a coal strike in Colorado, southern Colorado, in nineteen started in 1913, and the miners essentially Walked off the job. They were working in some of the most dangerous conditions in the country. And they, of course, when you quit the mine in those days, you also got evicted because you were living in company housing, right? So a lot of them were homeless. Uh, they set up tents along the railway line in an effort to try to block the uh, the, the scabs, the, the people who would be filling in for them from coming to the ones who were bucking the, the union from, from coming into the mines. And this has set up a very violent situation, which for many months was controlled by sending in the National Guard. But in the spring of 1914, uh, they started to remove, the governor basically recalled most of the guardsmen. And the uh, this led to an incident, a conflict with the guard. It's not clear who started what, but there was a lot of shooting. And by the end of the day, the guardsmen had burned down this tent colony to the ground called Ludlow. And uh, several women and several children died in that because they were asphyxiated. They were trapped under one of the burning tents in a storage area. And there were also some soldiers who died and some prisoners who seemed to have been executed uh, without proper procedures at all. And The guy who's the hero of this book is actually someone who was at Ludlow. He was a uh, captain with the National Guard. He was recalled before this uh, violent conflict started. And he came back down to investigate and pressed for court-martial charges against the soldiers responsible, um, none of which actually happened. It was an early education for him in uh, how, how justice is sometimes elusive.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So the protagonist in your story a man named Philip Van Seis, uh, a fascinating guy. Can you give us his backstory, how he came to Colorado?
1: Yes. I mean, Van Seis came from a very uh, well-known, not wealthy family, but uh, his father was a lawyer and a very influential fellow who had had a lot of jobs in a lot of different places. had been very uh, a prominent citizen in Deadwood back in the mining boom there uh in the black hills and so he was philip was born in deadwood in the late 1880s um his his family moved to denver because it was the new happening place in 1900 his father taught at the law school worked served on the utilities board was a strong progressive figure in denver and so phil grew up uh finished his high school in denver went to law school up at the University of Colorado, was going to follow in his father's footsteps, basically, but was a bit restless, too. And that's how he ended up in the National Guard and subsequently uh, served in World War I. He he finished the war as a lieutenant colonel, uh, was uh, decorated for his work in military intelligence, all of which has some bearing on what he ultimately did in Denver. He's this kind of straight arrow guy who uh, didn't have a lot of connections, but you know, had a very strong sense about right and wrong, uh, sometimes very off-putting, in fact. I mean, I think he's sort of a flawed character by the things that also make him so virtuous and interesting. Um, and, and so he comes back to Denver after World War I and decides to run for district attorney, not knowing anything about the job or the kind of uh, institutional corruption that he'd be facing in Denver. This was all something he discovered on the job
2: what exactly did he walk into? What's the realization for him that this might be a a much bigger job than the job he had anticipated it would be? Yeah, he had no idea. And I
1: think most people, when they look at the history of Denver, don't know that much about this particular period. I mean, I think all cities go through some uh, growing pains, if you will. Denver had been a a frontier town that quickly evolved into this sort of cosmopolitan center, the largest city between Kansas City and San Francisco. And to this, on the surface, it was, you know, this, this very progressive appealing place. But there was a long entrenched history of corruption and graft among the city administration. I mean, This went back to the early days of, uh, you know, the gambling halls and open prostitution and things like that. It was much more covered up in the 1920s by the time Spence Heitz got into office, but it was still there. And he was sort of astonished to discover how deep it went. He went to see the chief of police, who he knew was a pretty straight guy. And the chief of police basically was this defeated figure. He was saying, yeah, there's all this stuff happening in town. I'll I'll show it to you. And he had a, a captain escort him around town and he saw that the gambling halls were still there. The speakeasies were there. Um, you know, there were all these elaborate scams going on, and yet all of it was protected some way. And, and when he asked the chief, well, why don't you just raid these places? And the police, police chief told him, well, you know, I, I would be out of a job immediately. Um, and you're going to find out the same thing, that there are spies everywhere, including in your office. Um, so what he, what he started to realize was that there was a there was this whole organized crime structure in Denver, and the head of it all was this guy named Lou Blanger, who had been... One of these colorful old West figures years ago, now in his 70s, but still very active and really controlled the payoffs to everybody. If you were in trouble, you went to Lou and Lou made sure the police looked the other way for a cut of whatever you were doing.
2: Uh, You write in your book that he and the police chief made a pact that they would tackle the corruption together. And then the police chief dies not long after. Right on the eve of him,
1: to, of Van Sy's taking the DA's office. Yes. So he realizes, in fact, that the successors for the police chief were all people the police chief mentioned were in Blonger's pocket. So uh, he had, he's faced this dilemma coming into office that he can't rely on his own police force. How is he supposed to do any investigation? How is he supposed to make any arrests? And that's the dilemma he faces at the outset of the story.
2: Yeah. Uh, Blanger is known as the Fixer, Denver's criminal kingpin. Uh, In the 1920s, uh, especially with the advent of Prohibition, every major city in the United States pretty much had had an underworld boss. Yes. And Blanger was one of the more interesting that I've read about. He, He actually, back in his day, competed with Soapy Smith, right?
1: Right. Soapy Smith was one of these great 19th century sort of figures in the history of con artistry. I mean, he had this thing that he started out with on the street where it looked like, you know, they would have three card Monty games and things like that. And he had this this scam involving soap where he'd wrap up dollar bills or five dollar bills or twenty dollar bills and they'd be wrapped around soap inside a package. And the idea is you, could, you would try to guess which which package had the money as well as the soap. And of course, none of them did. It was, it was artfully palmed. and uh, There were shills who won money that way. So that he would just basically fleece people right and left who were paying outrageous amounts of money for what was basically a bar of soap. And he went on to do more elaborate scams and ultimately went off to the Alaska, the Yukon Gold Rush, uh, and, and died up there. But Blonger was one of his early rivals and uh, that's sort of, you know, his own baptism of fire and dealing with the organized crime element in Denver. By the time of the 20s, it had gotten much more sophisticated and Blanger had, you know, distanced himself. He wasn't dirtying his hands directly. He was letting other people do that for him.
2: Right, exactly. You write that by 1901, Blanger had been arrested more than 20 times. He had been raided more times than he could count. He, he was a really tough character he'd happily pistol whip a guy who he believed crossed him but after 1901 he had tried to become more respectable right he had one foot in the criminal muck and the other in uh polite society is that the right well, term
1: respectable world yes yes <laughs> No, I mean, that's one of the great things about these guys is they learn how to be, you know, businessmen about it. And and sooner or later, they're cultivating friendship of judges and politicians. And he was doing that. The thing that alerted Van Size to him in the first place was simply as he's running for DA, Blonder comes to see him and, and basically offers him a $25,000 campaign donation, which was about five times what his salary would have been as DA. So he's wondering, what's this guy trying to protect? And why is he trying to bribe me so openly? And he, has he done this with all the other DAs? So he starts looking into his past and he says, huh, this guy hasn't had an arrest in 20 years. You know, is he legitimate now? Or is he just gotten really good at insulating himself from the consequences of what the kind of crimes that he that he's involved in? And he pretty quickly concludes it's the latter. That I mean, it really it's really quite an arrangement that blonder has in the city of denver
2: and Blonger had a cohort kind of a henchman nicknamed kid duffy
1: yes Adolf Duff who is the guy who actually runs the scams for Blonger, and again it's it sort of sort of serves as the buffer you know you remember in the Godfather part two when they go to the Congressional hearings, the guy's explaining there were always lots of buffers in the Corleone family so that you really never got near the top. Um, that's kind of the situation here, too. Duff was one of those buffers.
2: Uh, it, it was an article in a newspaper about an Indiana man who had committed suicide that really helped Van Seis focus his sights on Blonger
1: wouldn't yes. you say? Yes, I think, well, he already had his sights on Blonder, but he didn't know what he was up to. I mean, it wasn't the old style, oh, he's got running a crooked gambling operation or something like that. Um, he couldn't figure out how these guys got out of their basically bottom-feeding existence and, and now seem to be so influential and so rich. And it was only bit by bit he began to realize that Denver was the center for a national network of confidence artists not just scam artists in the old style like soapy smith but these operators of the big con the long con uh the sort of thing you see in the movie the sting which actually if you trace it back goes back to this very situation uh where they're they're, they've got something like a fake stock exchange and and over a period of months weeks or months really they lure these marks in and they get them to think that they're on the verge of an absolute killing and they don't really, their money's not at risk and, and they get fleeced out of hundreds of thousands of dollars, which in the 1920s, you know, that's equivalent to millions of dollars today. Um, so he starts to realize that this is what Blonder and Duff have set up in Denver. They are, they are the protection for this elaborate confidence game which really does ruin people's lives. And in, he sees the case of this reverend who committed suicide after being bilked out of this money that was, you know, trust fund money for clients of his. And he realizes this is, you know, this is not a romantic thing the way it's often portrayed, you know, the con man being sort of the, the, the Robin hood hero who steals from the rich and gives these people their comeuppance. But was, these are really kind of vicious predators. And he, he's trying to figure out how to go after them again without being able to use his own police force.
2: Right, right. Uh, I mentioned prohibition earlier. That, of course, is causing major issues during this era. Is that something that Van Sys was concerned about as well? Illegal liquor, bootlegging, etc.? Or was his primary focus on these gambling operations, this proliferation of confidence men on the streets of downtown Denver?
1: That's a good question. Uh, I mean, I think, yes, he had to be focused on prohibition because there was so much attention to that and there was so much crime associated with it. I don't know that he really had deep views about, you know, whether the law was sensible or not. I mean, I think like a lot of people in law enforcement, he would just as soon have seen it go away. But I mean, he was not a big drinker or or even, uh, you know, or or an absolutely rigid teetotaler himself. Um, but it was, it was certainly an issue, but mostly because of the other crimes that come with it. And, and so he had to deal with that as well. But I, I think he felt that, you know, you were never really going to get a handle on on, <laughs> on the drinking issue. But you might be able to stop some of these other things, which in their own way, created a lot of other crime as well.
2: Right. And he comes into the job near the beginning of prohibition, Right.
1: Well except that yeah the only the only thing I would have a little caveat about there was Colorado was unusual they actually passed a prohibition law 5 years before the federal law the Volstead Act Interesting. So they're actually, in effect, the bootleggers had an extra five years of practice <laughs> to, get, to get ready for it before prohibition formally entered nationwide. And that gave them certain advantages uh, in terms of working out supply lines and things like that.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So four months into the job, you write, Van Sice actually sends word to anyone involved in in Denver gambling operations, that they can come and informally meet with him. And I've got to say, it, it so reminded me of that, that scene from uh, Guys and Dolls, <laughs> the, the one with the uh, one dozen genuine sinners. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know what
1: you're talking about.
2: Yes. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us more about that meeting?
1: Well, it's odd. I mean, you you think about how adversarial, you know, this relationship has to be between him and the people who are doing this. But they're doing it so openly and they feel so confident that he's not uh, really a factor that some of them show up, I think, mainly out of curiosity. He, He sends out the word that he's going to have this meeting and people show up and he explains to them that he's going to shut down all the gambling and they should get out while the going's good. And basically, they just sort of scoff at it. I mean, some of them some of them do start to think, well, maybe I can move my operation right across the county line and I'll be out of his jurisdiction and big deal if he's going to make a fuss about this. Uh, but the others are openly contemptuous. It's like, well, you're not the police. You can't do this by yourselves. You know, I'm going to just go do what I want. Uh, but it, it was, a, it, was an, it was an interesting move by him. And of course, he then backed it up by staging some raids to show that he was dead serious about this and that the, the, you, the protection they'd been enjoying was going to go away one way or another.
2: Right, right, yeah. And once he starts conducting these raids, he is taken more seriously. And the public latches onto this. And leads start pouring in, which allows him to begin mapping out this web of, of criminal activity.
1: Yes. I mean, the interesting thing here that I think is so much like the way these investigations are still are done today. I mean, when you're talking about criminal conspiracies of one kind or another, is that it takes it, it takes some inside information at some point. And ultimately, with the conman, he'll have a lot of that. But it starts with these anonymous letters. He starts getting from other people who are clearly criminals and are trying to get him sick him on their rivals, right? Their competition saying, well, you really ought to go investigate this guy or that guy. And uh, there's one particularly well-informed source who's anonymous, who starts telling them more about Blonder's operation. He He starts to put this together with what happened with this reverend whose obituary he saw and some of the other information he has about people being scammed in these huge confidence games in Denver and realizes that he's got this major and very sophisticated and protected confidence game network going on out of Denver. And it's going to take a major operation on his part to, uh, to, to be able to smash them. And, and and he's going to have to find ways to do it again, staying away from his own police and hiring his own investigators and coming up with some new ways to, to investigate these guys because this, this is a very sophisticated operation and they're, They're used to either protect, you know, paying off cops or, you know, totally
2: bamboozling them. We will be back in just a moment. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside.
1: Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com
2: or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hello,
1: everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences,
0: what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the Golden Age of Piracy are... Some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonney, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories? Their real stories. Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates we examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
2: And we have returned can you walk us through how these these bunko artists the, these con men would find their victims and lure them in
1: right right no it, 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 yeah yeah, yeah it, some of it sounds kind of strange today like how would anybody fall for this but you have to understand I guess sort of the mentality of the 20s and and just how slick these guys were um essentially they were for the first rule was that they were not gonna they were not going to go after locals because they didn't want to cause troubles with the police. They didn't want somebody who was going to be around later to harass them. Um, So, so the idea was to look for rich marks from out of state and Colorado was a good place to do that because the tourism industry was booming and summertime, there would be lots of people coming to the mountains, you know, and wanting to see the sites. And so their main hunting ground were some of the major hotels in the area, the fancier places, the Brown Palace, the Broadmoor, and they would basically blend in. I mean, they're not; these are not, uh, you know, shady characters. These are people who seem to be legitimate businessmen, and it's really a series of random encounters that leads the Mark, or what they think are random encounters, to uh, a situation where they're hanging out with these people who seem to be absolute stock wizards, and they know how to they know how to manipulate the market and make a killing overnight. And bit by bit, these people get lured into it. At first, they're not no one's asking them for money. No one's asking them to invest They're 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 volunteering, well, you know, here's a tip. Here's, you know, let us invest some money for you. Um, you know, we'll just play this around today, whatever. So. It's a very elaborate process that takes some time. There's, 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 a, there's a one player who's known as the steerer or the roper who identifies the mark and introduces them to someone known as the spieler, who's the stock wizard, who was very glib and uh, the person that, you know, the, the mark is supposed to bond with to some degree. And then they go to the stock exchange where their stock exchange employees, of course, these are all actors and they've all got their role to play in this elaborate uh, deception. Um, and this goes on in, until, you know, after a certain period, the, the person is persuaded that, uh, you know, they've made a bunch of money in this in this operation. And all they really have to do is show up with to prove that they had the money to make the bets in the first place, the, uh, to make the stock purchases, which were done on credit they think their money is not at risk at all, then through a series of complicated problems, the money is lost, all of it. If, if it's done well, the person may not even realize they've been swindled.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Van size has grand ambitions, right? <laughs> but not a budget uh, <laughs> yeah, to make his crime-busting yeah, plans this is, come I mean, true.
1: He's, he has to improvise all along the way. And one of the things he does, which again I think is very... Forward thinking of him is, since he can't get public money for this, he can't go to the city council and say, "I need a budget to go investigate this confidence game which the police are in on." He instead goes to the, the private donors. He goes to the philanthropists of Denver. These these blue blood families that have made a fortune, you know, from the frontier days or whatever, and hits them up and says, "Hey, you guys care about your city." Uh, I need a donation for the top secret investigation I'm doing, and he he manages to raise the the, the fifteen thousand dollars that he thinks it's going to take, and he uses that money to hire former federal agents or police from from far away cities to come and work for him undercover, and the, the local police will know nothing about them, and his own people, most people in his own office don't know anything about them. And these are the people that he unleashes in his 18 month investigation really, uh, to build a case against the con men, which, which then takes them into the world of, you know, surveillance on these con men.
2: Was he able to keep this secret from the Denver police? Yes. I think he, that was one of the
1: more successful and amazing things about this was that although at different times the mob and their police, uh, assistants, uh, suspected that they were under surveillance or that there was something going on, he really did manage to misdirect them in certain ways so that they did not realize the extent of the investigation or how vulnerable they were until they were all swept up off the streets. And he had ironclad evidence of the scam and how to convict them in court.
2: Could you give us uh, examples of some of these surveillance techniques yeah well used. keep in mind again this,
1: this comes out of his background in military intelligence he he understood that you have to do a number of things if you want to uh, really keep tabs on the enemy so from the beginning he had he had a degree of surveillance of these people that today I think would be very difficult to do without a lot of special warrants I mean he he had he had he was checking who they were calling he had the like lines to the phone company about basically what sort of calls were being made to where he was monitoring telegrams that went back and forth. Um, he had the janitor from Blonder's office delivering the trash from the office to him. So he could see what was in the wastebasket, you know, correspondence and things like that. Um, and then he intensified this. He had, he had these agents following these guys around, taking notes on who they're meeting uh, working on identifying both who the con men are and who the marks are, which is, a, which is no small feat. I mean, these conmen did a great deal to remain anonymous. They would come here in the summer and they would work in Florida in the winter. They are always using aliases and they were very careful about not getting arrested or getting their name on record somewhere. And if there were records, they tried to work at destroying them. So just identifying these people and following them around was useful, but he was getting much more intelligence than that. Um, He ultimately got to the point where he was putting an electronic bug in the office of Lou Blonger, which in those days consisted of something we called a dictograph, which is a little bit like a dictaphone, but simpler with a microphone, very sensitive microphone and a wire that can lead to a stenographer or somebody in headphones in another room. Um, And he literally was monitoring what was being said in this guy's office for months building up a case against these guys. So this is really kind of the dawn of that kind of electronic surveillance. I mean, it was it was not untypical for prohibition officers, for example, to tap into people's phones uh, just down at the local exchange. But, but, but actually planting a bug in somebody's office and having it working for months, that was pretty new to most law enforcement. It, it just was not done that much until uh, later.
2: And I guess they had the element of surprise, because it wasn't really done, right? <laughs>
1: right. No, I mean, I mean, Blonder at different times suspected his phone was tapped, which it wasn't. Although at uh, th- 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 that time there was really no no legal obstacle for, for to keep Van Seich from doing that. But he would search his phone. He would look all over the place looking for bugs. He never found it. Um, And I don't think he realized that there was something in the ceiling that was that sophisticated that would pick up everything he was saying.
2: So not only is Van Seis going after members of this crime ring, but he's he's trying to root out the bad cops as well.
1: He would love to convict them, yes. And in some ways, this operation was a little less successful because he didn't catch them red-handed. But he had a pretty good idea who the crooked cops were just from seeing them. Associating with Bonger and some of the damning things they said on the on the microphone, um, and some, of, many of them were forced to resign. I he wasn't able to actually bring criminal charges against them, but he certainly knew who the bad apples were and and really wanted to prosecute them.
2: So Van Sice has gotten to the point where he's ready to make arrests, but he doesn't actually have the manpower. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, that's that's part of what's interesting about what he's done is he doesn't have enough of these uh, special officers to do all this by himself. He doesn't trust the police to do it. He doesn't want to take them to the jail. So he has various, because the jailer is on Blonder's payroll. They would just waltz right out of there. So he, he has to come up with this very elaborate plan for the roundup, as he calls it, of these guys. Once they have all the evidence they're going to get, and some of this is from undercover agents and some of us actually watching them work the scams and so on. Once he has all that, he goes and gets the state rangers, which are under the control of the governor, and uses them in plain clothes and borrows cars from some of these donors to use to transport everybody, makes a, a, a bunch of arrests in one fell swoop and puts all these guys in the basement of a church. Until he can get high bond, put high bail, put on him so that they can't just walk away. And uh, this is a stunningly successful maneuver. It catches everyone by surprise, including the police. And immediately, there's a lot of backpedaling and everybody trying to make excuses about why, you know, what's he? How did he do this? Why did he have to go outside of the usual channels to do it? Is he just showboating? You know, there, it was it was a great embarrassment to the city administration that this came out this way.
2: Right. There, there's this great scene where Van Seis is meeting with these Colorado Rangers and they ask him, what do we do if we confront these these guys as we're trying to arrest them and they, they fight back if, if they pull a gun? How do you want us to respond? And Van Seis tells them, don't worry, they won't resist because they <laughs> just assume they will be released the next day.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the whole thing about the fixer is, you know, you can take a pinch because you, you know that sooner, you know, you, you'll be out overnight, probably give everybody a fake name and you'll be gone the next day. I mean, that was, that was the genius of having Blonder involved is if somebody did complain, if somebody did get jammed up, they could either buy their way out of it or, or you know, the cops would look the other way. Something would happen and they could get, a, get they could be gone, um, this was much more serious, in part because Vansaise was very intent on identifying every one of these guys, getting their fingerprints, getting them on record. This was going to destroy their anonymity for future scams. And uh, there's a famous picture, which I run in the book, of uh, Kid Duffy resisting when they're trying to book him, and he's literally got his eyes shut, and they're like they're like they've got his head, sort of headlock while they're trying to take his mugshot. He's, he's trying to fight this all the way because he's destroyed every mugshot that was ever taken of him. He doesn't want to start a new record. We assume now that everybody can be identified so easily and we have DNA and we have fingerprints and we have, you know, everybody is on record somewhere. These guys had no records. They, they, if they had records, they got destroyed. They were really uh, free agents that way. And the the, 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 the most severe thing Van Size did to them was just by the virtue of identifying them and booking them to sort of put them on record.
2: Yeah. That's a wild photograph. I've never seen anything like that before. He's got this twisted kind of grimace on, on his face and his eyes are closed, like you said.
1: He's doing everything to spoil the shot. I mean, you know, he wants to blur his own fingerprints. He, you know, he, he just doesn't want to be cat- you know, cataloged somewhere so that they can find out who he is.
2: So as this investigation is, is reaching its climax, a figure suddenly enters the picture, which gives everyone pause. A man named J. Frank Norfleet. Definitely one of the more colorful figures in your story.
1: Oh, wonderful fellow. Yeah, Norfleet is is every con man's nightmare. Conmen rely on the shame of what you've done, uh, basically, you know, that you've been bilked or something like that, to keep you from going to the police or from... Uh, you know, admitting that you were so thoroughly swindled. Um, that's really one of the things they have in their favor is that a lot of the people who were taken by them don't necessarily report it. Uh, they, they don't want to admit to their family they got into something like this. Uh, sometimes the scam is so, it's, it's dicey. It's, it's like, oh, we're betting on a fixed horse race or something like that, that, you know, they don't think they can go to the police. Norfleet was, was known as the boomerang sucker, Instead, he got fleeced by these guys. He's a Texas rancher who lost all his money in a scam very similar to the one they were running in Denver. And instead of going home and blowing his brains out, which is sort of what they expect you to do, um, he went all over the country admitting not only that he was scammed, but sort of bragging about it in the sense that this happened to me. I'm looking for these guys. I'm going to find them. Here's their description. Have you seen them? He had, he didn't have any names, obviously. I mean, he had fake names for these people, but he did know what they looked like. And he, he basically was trying to parlay this information, going to various law enforcement, going into strange little dives where con men might hang out. And he became a legend. He became this guy who was, you know, out for revenge on the con men. And actually his quest led to the arrest of several of the people that scammed him. And, uh, it, it, he shows up in Denver right at the conclusion of Van Syce's investigation, looking for the one guy that's eluded him, who is going to be there. And Van Syce doesn't want him to screw up his investigation. At the same time, he realizes he can use Norfleet undercover because he knows as much about the scam as anyone, and he makes a very plausible mark. I mean, he can—you know—he's—he's—he's he's, he's sort of the uh, the mark who isn't really a mark. You know, he's—he's he's playing the con men for marks. It's, it's switching the tables on them.
2: Right, yeah. Uh, Norfleet wrote a book about his exploits, right?
1: Yes, he, he wrote a book about his exploits. I, I uh, there, there are some real differences of fact between that and Van Size's story. I think Norfleet's a little prone to exaggeration. Let's put it that way.
2: <laughs> but but it's this amazing revenge story uh, as he hunts down these guys who, who fleeced him one after another. And, and he even carries a gun on each hip, right?
1: Yeah, he's, he's got two six-shooters and he's, he's had this narrow escape in the Everglades with these guys. He's a very dramatic figure. And, and, and frankly, just the straightforward account of how he works undercover in this investigation is pretty dramatic because he, get, he, he immediately gets in with these guys. There's something about his face that just seems to attract the con men. And he's going through the whole routine with the stock exchange and they're keeping an eye on him so closely. And yet he's communicating with Van Syce back and forth about what's going on and what room he's in, in the hotel and when are they going to raid it? And uh, even he, he even works out this elaborate plan with Van Syce where he goes to the dental office complaining of, of a, of a bad tooth and the dentist is the go-between between him and Van Syce. Once he's in the dentist's office and away from his, his keepers he can uh, basically communicate with him about what's going on and and plausibly set up the uh, the final arrests of these guys and he's there when the Van sizes agents sweep in and get these guys and reveals to them that this is Frank Norfleet, the famous Norfleet who is who they were trying to fleece. so they know they're sunk at that point.
2: <laughs> so these con men had a signal that they used with each other, something they called the office. Can you explain that signal?
1: They have so much stuff. I mean, con men are such a fascinating subculture. They, They have their own lingo. They have all these little gestures and ways of communicating with each other. The office is essentially a way of opening your coat as if you were going to show a badge that basically lets another con man know that there's an arrest pending and it's like a signal that either get out of here or call the lawyers or one of those things. And they can do all, they can do so much among themselves if they have a chance to help sort of communicate to each other, possibly destroy evidence, do other things while they're, uh, while the police are rounding them up or whatever. Um, and, And they also attempt to bribe some of the people who were arresting them. There's, there's an incident where this one guy is offering a diamond stick pin in a very discreet way. To one of the DA assistants who is arresting him, and they, they, the 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 DA's thinking, this is why these guys hold cops in such contempt. They they can they, they're just used to bribing them and telling them to go away,
2: you know. Yeah. So these arrests were a long time in the planning, but of course the the charges had to stick. The, these criminals needed to be tried, convicted, punished. How did that go?
1: Well, that was, you know, kind of an exciting thing in itself. Uh, this was the longest, costliest trial in the history of Colorado at that point. I mean, think about you've got 20 or 30 defendants all with their own lawyers. And you're and, and wanted to try them all at once, right, you know, in a conspiracy case rather than have it broken into individual cases, which would be less effective. So there was a massive undertaking and there, there was a massive amount of evidence to present all these different scams. And, you know, there were some setbacks at the start of this. Van Syce did not actually do the prosecution because the defense successfully argued that he had some kind of conflict of interest, which was bogus, but uh, stuck. And so he was watching this from afar, but he also contributed in various ways, including making a deal with one of the top members of the group, the guy who was right under Blanger and Duffy, uh, who was very unhappy with them for not bailing him out, and uh, and basically became the top informant, the squealer. Uh, I mean, he was such a great witness; they didn't even need the evidence that came from this uh, this bug that they had in the office, um, which was fortuitous. So, I mean, but but right after the end, the 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 result was in doubt, even though the evidence was overwhelming it became clear that the gamblers around town were betting that these guys were going to be acquitted. I mean, they were taking odds on it. And you, you realize that they had, must have had something else at work, and really they've, they've, they've managed to fix the jury. They've put a couple of people on the jury, or, or at least bribed a couple of people on the jury to vote for acquittals. And it's only a very dramatic, without getting into too much detail, is it it a very dramatic showdown in the jury room that preserved what looked like slam dunk convictions for these guys.
2: We will return after this brief break. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Steeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous
0: Steeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon.
2: So while this story is is playing out, there is another ominous threat in Colorado that you also cover, uh, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. Can you yeah, explain it's, it's a
1: peculiar it's a peculiar story because we don't think of we think of the Klan and we think about the deep south in the eighteen sixties and the battle, you know, over Reconstruction. This was a whole different animal, and it, it, it was kind of grafted on to places like Colorado. The Klan in the 20s was this strange, revived uh, movement that, that quickly got political and, and became more mainstream as it went um, and was stronger in places like Colorado and elsewhere in the West and Midwest than it was in the South. And the primary message in Colorado was a very subtle thing. I mean, it started out as this fraternal organization that was also preaching white supremacy. But bit by bit, it became this sort of quasi... Well, I mean, it's just this bogus movement that, that really was using patriotism and polarizing people and, you know, demonizing Catholics and Jews primarily. I mean, they were... They were the primary target. There were also, I mean, attempts to intimidate uh, the black community, but that community is much smaller in Colorado in the 20s than, than say, the the Catholics, uh, who seem to be getting most of the harassment. And Ben Science was concerned about this as he started to, I mean, he, he heard reports of people being intimidated, threats being made, and he really wanted to get, you know, he, he thought the Klan was this horrible institution. It was uh, anti-constitutional as far as he was concerned. He's a guy who was going to try to uphold the law. And he didn't realize, I think, going into it, just how quickly this thing was spreading and how it was infecting government. Uh, so like the conman, he finds himself kind of having to improvise. His own police force is riddled with Klansmen. The person who becomes mayor in 1923 turns out secretly to be a Klansman. The irony there is this is right around the time of the Conman trial. Van Cies had been courted to run for mayor and decided not to do that. The guy who was elected in his stead is somebody that really opens the door to the Klan taking over the city administration. I mean, once they have a Klan mayor, uh, they get a Klan city attorney, a Klan police chief, all these other appointments of the mayor. And then they're starting to look at higher office. They're thinking they're going to run somebody for governor. They're going to run somebody for Senate, all this stuff. Um, it's, it, quickly, Colorado becomes one of the real strongholds of the Klan across the country. Uh, among the states that had the largest local representation of Klansmen, Indiana was probably first. Colorado was probably second.
2: Wow. And they made active attempts, right, to recruit Van Syce into their ranks.
1: Yeah, and that's interesting, too. I mean, in some ways, Van Seuss, I mean, Van Seuss was a conservative. He was a Republican. And in in the West, they really kind of focused on the Republican Party. In the South, it was a lot of Democrats who were Klansmen. Um, But Van Seuss, in some ways, fit their bill. I mean, he was kind of a hardliner on certain things like immigration. But they made the mistake, I think, of trying confusing conservatism with, you know, somehow that that makes him a white supremacist, which he wasn't. And again, I mean, he, he believed in the Constitution. So he turned these guys down flat. They came to him and actually wanted him to run for governor with their backing. And he said no to that. Within a few months of that, they were really trying to destroy him. you know. And he was trying very actively to recruit people to keep them from taking over the Republican Party and, to ta- and from taking over state government.
2: Would you talk about Clarence Morley and his ascension? Yeah, this
1: is one of the more neglected characters in all of this. Morley was a district judge, and, and size had issues with him going back even before the elections in 1924. But Morley was clearly a Klansman, and not just any Klansman. He was very close to the Grand Dragon, this guy named uh, John Galen Locke. And Morley became the candidate for governor after Van size turned the job down, and and did become the governor. And the interesting thing is that we don't People usually lose sight of him in all this because he was such a yes man. He he didn't seem to have any original thoughts or personality of his own. And after a rather ineffective two years as governor, uh, he disappeared for a while and just became involved in scandal towards the end of his life and uh, was sent away for mail fraud to Leavenworth. So Colorado's only governor that was also a jailbird. I know other states have more distinctions that way, but uh, this guy was a particularly loathsome human being, and uh, Van Zeyde couldn't stand him. Van Zeyde fought him at every turn.
2: The, the KKK eventually kind of self-implodes, right?
1: Well, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I like to think Van Zeyde had something to do with it. I think he did contribute to the to it in terms of. One of the last things he did in office was to file kidnapping charges against the Grand Dragon, which were later dismissed by a Klan judge, but certainly kept him busy for a while and it was sort of the beginning of the end of the following of a lot of dominoes. Um, this was happening not just in Colorado, but across the country. The Klan grew hugely over a couple of years, and then I think a lot of the people who were opportunists who had joined became very dissatisfied with uh, what was happening and, and and really disappeared almost as fast as they had joined. Um, but there was a lot of corruption and a lot of scandal inside the Klan. Uh, Locke split with the national organization and tried to start a rival organization called the Minutemen. And schisms like that were happening around the country. Some Klan, high-ranking Klan leaders were being charged with various crimes. Uh, you know, embezzlement, some of them vigilante efforts that ended up in criminal charges. And so, you know, I, I, and, and there was just a lot of scamming of their own members. I mean, if you think about the amount of money involved in the Klan, that's an aspect of this that uh, I think links it to the con men more directly. Um, these guys were, coming, were taking in tons of money for robes, for paraphernalia, for dues, millions of dollars. And no one's clear where any of it went. I mean, some of it went to national headquarters. Some of it got skimmed at the local level. Some of it disappeared here and there. Uh, there, were, there were payoffs from bootleggers, payoffs from politicians. There was all kinds of money going into the Klan. And I think various people got rich off it and took off.
2: Who did the Grand Dragon kidnap? That's a great story too. I mean, it, some of these things you just
1: you just can't believe them. But they, they, you know, this is a guy running this organization that's that's claiming to be this law and order organization and quasi patriotic and all this stuff. And he was, but Locke was this guy who just had to run things his own way. And there was a high school student who had impregnated a the daughter of a Klansman. My high school student, I think, was also a Klansman. And basically, they, they snatched this high school kid from his home and dragged him to Locke's office where their, a shotgun wedding was performed. And uh, the kid went home that night and said, you know, told his mother what happened. And she went to see Vance Size. And he said, I just can't believe this. And he believed the kid. He couldn't believe Locke blundered as badly as he did in doing this. I and mean, he says, that's assault. That's kidnapping. That's conspiracy. Um, you know, I finally got what I've been looking for for the last you know year or two, which is bona fide criminal charges against these guys. I mean, that's what he really was going for, was trying to f- find a way to charge them with a criminal conspiracy, similar to what the con men were doing. And so that's <laughs> that that was that that happened in practically his last week of office. He knew he would never be reelected in, in that environment. Uh, the courts and the cops were Solidly in the Klan's corner at that point. He was just trying to get some people elected that would help slow that process.
2: Crazy. You, you briefly mentioned the connection between these Denver cons and the film The Sting. Would you elaborate on that connection?
1: Yeah, it's a little roundabout, but happy to. Um, so after Van Sy's wrapped up the con man. He eventually wrote a book about it called Fighting the Underworld. And that in turn led to him being contacted by a linguistics professor who was fascinated with con man Argo and wanted more information about all this stuff. And so this professor, David Maurer, interviewed Van Seuss and also interviewed lots of real-life con men about how they did their work. And it's a fascinating book called The Big Con, which came out in 1940. And if you follow the portrayal of this, that book, many years later, becomes source material for the movie The Sting. Uh, Maurer actually sued Universal over the movie, uh, claiming that uh, they they lifted too much from his book and gave him no credit or any payment whatsoever and settled out of court for a large amount of money. Uh, but the, all of this stuff that's going on in The Sting is really has its roots in what was going on in Denver in the 1920s, except that the con men in Van Size's experience were not as cuddly as uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford in The Sting, right? <laughs> right. not the good guys in his story.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there were some really funny Runyon-esque character names in your book uh, Coca-Cola Candlish. Yes. The Christ Kid.
1: Well, again, all these con men go by various sobriquets. Um, Coca-Cola Candlish was actually the police chief who got got his name because he hung out in soda parlors, which were often fronts for uh, bootlegging operations. But yes, all these con men, I mean, some of them had these really strange names, uh, you know, Thick Lips, Mushnick, uh, you know, the Christ Kid, the Yellow Kid. Uh, Kid Duffy, um, and and I mean, common like to confuse the outer world by using their own special language and signs and signals, and part of that is uh, is this incredible uh, nomenclature that they use with each other.
2: Yeah, yeah. You've written about all sorts of subjects in your career, but true crime seems to be of special interest. As I said in the introduction. You've become known nationally for your knowledge of maximum security prisons.
1: Yeah. That's, one, that's, that's one thing I've, I've spent time on mainly because we have so many of them here. The federal supermax is in Colorado, as well as uh, some state complexes. And so there's a lot of notorious inmates here, uh, some of whom I've interviewed over the years, but, you know, I, I, there, there, there's a lot of rich material with some of this history that I think is the more compelling thing. It doesn't matter whether it's true crime or something else. But part of what drew me to Van Vanceyce's story is you think, well, 100 years ago, that's, you know, it's going to be pretty fragmentary, right, in terms of source material. But the fact that he was doing these advanced techniques in, in investigation and, and doing all this surveillance A surprising amount of material is still there, uh, which really helped, you know, sort of goad me into the book was, wow, you know, you can look at these spy reports, these guys he had infiltrating the Klan and going up to the mountain, Table Mesa Mountain on Monday nights when the thousands of these Klansmen would gather and burn crosses and tell the faithful who to vote for and all this kind of stuff. Uh, he had undercover agents up there. And so you read these reports and it's like you're right there and you get to see some of the, the pomp and the lunacy of the whole thing. Um, similarly with the con man, you know, he had the, there these surveillance notes. One of his detectives donated a cache of investigated materials to the library years ago. You know, you, you, you know exactly where these guys are and where they're being shadowed and followed around. So it's possible to get more of that urgency and that sort of immediate sense of of you are there kind of thing uh, in writing this stuff, which was which makes it a lot of fun. You don't feel, I guess, so confined to you know, the standard history or the distance that history sometimes sets for us.
2: Have you picked a topic for your next book yet?
1: I haven't. I mean I I I want something as fun as this. And so that's sometimes not something that stumbles in your lap every day, but um, this was a lot of fun. Uh, people who've read the book tell me that, you know, they just sort of, it, it brings them back to a different period, but one that seems closer than you would think. You know, the past is really not all that far away sometimes. And I, I wanted it to have that kind of immediacy rather than, you know, be something that you're, you're, that's, that's remote. And, and so I, I'm, I'm looking for that in the next project as well Is something that you can really get a front row seat to.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So people can find out more about you, your work, at your website, ellenprendergast.com. And I will put a link, of course, in the show notes. Terrific. And this book was just recently published.
1: End of March from Citadel Press. Uh, Yes, we're still getting the word out about it and uh, getting a really nice response. So uh, that's great.
2: Well, I appreciate you spending some time with us on this. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure,
1: Eric. Thank you for all the attention and the great questions.
2: Again, I have been speaking to Alan Prendergast. He is the author of Gangbuster, One Man's Battle Against Crime, Corruption, and the Clan*. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, Broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.